All right. Hope you guys have had a great week. Appreciate you uh, joining us today. Welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. And uh, for God's reading, let's open up to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke 18. Luke 18. And we are going to read 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Here we go. And it says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Thank you for your words here in Luke, Lord, this parable that you've given us. Lord, I pray that we have a um, time that um, pleases you today. I pray that the messages that we have today are pleasing to you. I pray that uh, the worship is pleasing to you, Lord. And I pray that our hearts are pleasing to you today, Lord. I pray if there's any distractions today that we set them aside, Lord, and that we focus on you, Lord, the true King, the true Savior, and you, Lord, are the most high of all, Lord, and we love you and we thank you. We pray in your name. Amen. And take your seats. Turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. We're going to be closing out a section of Scripture that we started with last Sunday, and there really just wasn't enough time to get through this entire passage, but we're going to read it all again in context because there is a great deal of spiritual meat for us to ingest here. And it starts with verse 1 of chapter 3 of Philippians, and it runs through verse 11. And we are going to try to get all the way through verse 11 this morning. But I'm going to back up and read what we studied together last week in verses 1 through 4, because it's a good reminder as we look for the content that leads in to the remaining verses. So beginning in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 1, finally... My brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Ray, would you lead us, please? Amen. Thank you. So gauging from our study last week, I think we have a pretty good idea of what was facing the Philippian believers and why Paul was commanding them to rejoice in the Lord. He was connecting that joy and that rejoicing to a relationship, and that relationship was found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the relationship that we need in order for this joy to be found in us and in order to rise up out of us and to be an overcoming kind of joy. Paul was warning them, and it was a very strong warning that we found last week, where in the ESV version, he says, look out, look out, look out, or I think maybe it's NASB, beware, beware, beware. There were three kinds of bewares that he wants us to look out for, and those were the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilation. And these could all be kind of summed up as the joy stealers, and the joy stealers that Paul is really pinpointing here are the Judaizers that have infiltrated the Christian church. They themselves professed to be Christians, however, they were trying to add legalism into the the pure gathering of the church founded in Christ Jesus, and they were attempting to insert man's rules and man's regulations, things that were more customary and part of the ceremonial law, and blending that in with salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, by His grace. And trying to blend in legalism with grace was corrupting the gospel. It wasn't the true gospel at all. And that is why Paul is being very forthright with these warnings. And he's using things that would be insults for those who were the legalists. You know, referring to them as dogs. And we saw that there was an Old Testament reference for that. It was really the male prostitutes that were engaging in this, this kind of behavior. And they were called dogs. And that eventually became an insult that the Jews used for Gentiles. And now Paul was turning that around on them there. But he's warning us that we should not take any confidence in our flesh to earn our salvation. But the hope of our salvation rests in God alone through Christ alone, because we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision that Paul states, and that means that we have the circumcision of the heart, that that has taken place in salvation. When we are are cleansed and reborn, that we then become the circumcision of God, not an outward expression of our faith, but something that has occurred inwardly by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit uh, that we find in Titus chapter 3. 
Now, who better to speak in an educated way to these legalists than the Apostle Paul himself? We recall that before Paul was Paul, he was Saul with an S, right? All that got added to his name was a P, but there was a miraculous conversion that took place when that name change occurred. But if we look at who Paul once was, uh, we have a pretty clear understanding of that from the Scripture. So look at chapter 8 of Acts with me. I got a couple of passages here that I want us to look at in Acts, and the first comes from Acts chapter 8. This is right after the stoning of Stephen, who is said to be the first Christian martyr that we have, and what happened afterwards, and this is where Saul is brought up. In Acts 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, that was Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was Saul before Paul. Look at Acts chapter 22. Paul's words to describe himself as a devout Jew before his conversion, Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 3. He says there, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was, had set out as a religious Jew, as a Pharisee, to persecute the early Christians to the degree that he was taking them in in bonds to be punished, to be executed for the name of Christ. So at one time in Paul's life, this was something that he boasted in. This was something that he took pride in. And now for Paul, who once was Saul, they are just facts about his past. And Paul is recounting those for us here. For those who might challenge his right to really speak on this matter, like, who are you to call us dogs? Who are you to call us the mutilation? And he said, I'll tell you why I have the right to do that. Because I once were as you are. In fact, I even superseded all that you think that you have done. And he lists that here. Paul was a legalist of legalists. Now, if Paul were interviewing for the position of a, a Pharisee, and the interviewers were to ask him to tell them why he thought that he was qualified for that position, these are the things that he would probably tell them. Beginning in verse 4, let's look back there at it, Philippians 3, verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, 
I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's almost like Paul has this checklist in front of him, everything that you would need to include in your resume to be a qualified Pharisee. These are all your credentials. Um, You know, Paul could identify well with the Judaizers because at one time he was one of them. He could measure up to their standard that they hold other people to. I remember when I went to Tanzania back in April of of this year. I wanted to say last year. We're not there yet. But April of this year, um, I was traveling with some people. I don't travel much. I hate to fly. So um, these others that I was going with, they had all these frequent flyer miles that they had built up. And I remember one of them had said that he had earned so many miles in the Delta Club that he was considered a diamond member. And I guess that's a place of high status, maybe something to brag about. He wasn't bragging about it. But if there were a status to hold within the ranks of Pharisees, you know, Paul was a diamond member. And he says here that he has more of a reason to boast of his confidence in the flesh. And the first thing that he says, that he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul is speaking of his ritual right to be qualified to speak to them, to speak educatedly to them. He understands where they once were. This means that Paul's parents were very obedient Jews themselves to bring him on the eighth day to be circumcised. We know that John the Baptist, his parents brought him. Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised. So following in that ritual rite of passage, Paul had checked this one off the box. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He is saying now he has the right from a nationality perspective to claim and to boast about in that he was of the people of Israel. This is his family tree. The name Israel was given to Jacob by God himself. So Paul is stressing here the absolute purity of his family tree. He's blood-borne, not a convert like proselytes were. They were not truly of the people of Israel, but yet Paul was. So nationally speaking and ritually speaking, Paul had every right to make this argument. Then he goes on to say that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's of the right ritual, he's of the right family, and now he is of the right heritage. So not only was he a son of good, faithful Jewish parents, a true Israelite, but he was from this honored tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin holds a special significance because he was the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's wife, and he was of the twelve. He was the only one that was born in the promised land. So that holds special significance, especially to one who was a Jew. If you were the tribe of Benjamin, wow, that elevated you in status. That, that alone probably made you the diamond member. From his tribe came the first king of Israel, and that was the king Saul, who the people chose, whose name Paul bore before he became Paul. So Paul being called Saul, that's probably where his name came from. Um, because King Saul was the first king of Israel from the tribe of the Benjamites. Um, Mattoon comments to the significance of this. He says, When the tribe split in two, the ten tribes of the north sided with Jeroboam, and Benjamin remained loyal to Judah in the south. When the Jews returned from exile, the nucleus of the nation was from Benjamin, 
and Judah. So Paul had a right ritually. He had a right of uh, heritage. He had a right nationally speaking. And then he says now he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. So from the religious standpoint, here is why Paul had the right to argue with them on these matters and to call them out for their legalism. Being a Hebrew of Hebrews, this stressed his pure religious bloodline. Because many of the Hellenistic Jews, those that had gone out, now were living in Roman and Greek culture, they began to conform and they began to speak, uh, excuse me, they began to speak Greek and they began to adopt some of the cultures. And in a sense, they had tarnished that heritage, but not Paul. Paul still spoke Hebrew. He was saying he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but with all his racial position and pride, Saul was lost until he came face to face with Christ. But before his conversion, he was like many since his time who take great pride in their nationality or in their heritage or in their rituals. I know many of us we live in a great country. We maybe take pride in being American. There are some that take pride in their maybe their English roots or maybe they're Russian or German or so on. There may be some nationalistic pride that they hold to, but when it comes to the degree, like Paul held on to it, that it earns us a right before God, it earns us our salvation, then it is viewed in the wrong way. Just because we live in a country that has a lot of freedoms afforded to us, does not mean that that naturally gives us a ticket in to the kingdom of heaven. It is not through our heritage. It is not through our rituals, which we understand. It is not through our nationality. It is only through the Savior. If we allow racial or national identity to become uh, a way to Christ, a way to God, then that, in a sense, becomes a barrier between us and Christ's salvation for us. So he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Sorry, I got off on my soapbox a little bit there. (laughs) He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he had the right nationality, the right rituals. He had the right heritage. Um, He he did all the right things. Here he has the right occupation as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. And then he says, as to zeal, he has the right zeal. And a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He even has the right so-called morality as well. So beyond his blood pedigree, beyond the national pedigree, beyond his religious superiority, Paul belonged to the strictest sect among the Jews, and that was the Pharisees. And just studying a little bit about the Pharisees, this is historical uh, documents where I derive this information, so take it as that, you know, be Bereans, and, and you can go back to the source. This is not found in Scripture But it says that usually no more than 6,000 people at any given time were Pharisees. Their name means separated ones because they separated themselves from all common life and tasks in order to keep every detail of the law. All the dietary restrictions, all the feasts, all the customs that were part of the Jewish religion, they held to those and they, they did so very diligently. They were zealous, and so was Paul. He said he had much zeal for the law and being a persecutor of the church. They had very high morals. 
when others carelessly violated the laws, the Pharisees maintained very careful, obedient diligence to following the law. And the Pharisees were very sincere in their religious convictions. And you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. And that was the Pharisees. Because all will be assessed by God according to his standard and not man's. And God, we know that he can see something that no one else can. He sees inwardly. He knows our inmost sins. And Christ is the only one who can come and cleanse us of our sins inwardly. And the Pharisees, they do kind of get a bad rap in our time. Um, And sometimes we use Pharisee to insult someone. And you can, you know, maybe look at the Pharisees and see one who personifies that prideful arrogance. That's usually why it is used as an insult. But the Pharisee of the oldest order in Israel, it stood for someone who held to the highest and strictest kind of standard. I mean, they really sought to please God with their adherence to the law. But when the law became their means of salvation, that's when it got troublesome for them. Because all along they knew that the righteousness that they needed was far above the one that they could achieve on their own through adherence to the law. It was the righteousness that was promised to Abraham by Abraham's faith that he would receive this righteousness. And it was a faith that looked ahead in the fulfillment of the righteousness that would then be given to us through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in the Messiah come. But over time, the the Pharisees, especially those of the strict religious order, had taken it to be their salvation. Holding to the law in the strictest manner was what earned you favor before God and what even earned you uh, the right of being blameless before God. That's what Paul, Saul, would say of his own adherence to the law, that if it were by righteousness under the law, he would be blameless. Because according to the law, outwardly, Paul probably didn't mess up very much. He held to it. He was a strict rule follower. And for himself and those around him in his circles, they probably say that Paul, he had it going on. You know, he could follow the law. And Spurgeon says of Paul here, I may say of him that there is no man who stood so good a chance of being justified by works as Paul did if there could have been any justification in that way. Paul says in Galatians 3, 19 through 21, well, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So Paul is kind of reflecting on how he once viewed the law. The, view, the law is necessary. It points out God's holiness, and the strict standard of his holiness is to follow it perfectly all the time. But none of us can We need a righteousness that is not by our doing or not earned by our efforts, but is a righteousness that is granted to us. 
And this is really where Paul will make the distinction between who he was as the pure Jewish Paul that had it all right in terms of ritual uh, status, in terms of nationality, in terms of his heritage, in terms of his, you know, following the law. All these things Paul had checked off the box. But now he was going to say, even as that rule follower Saul, he was still lost. But now here is who he is as Paul. The righteousness according to the demands of the law and that which is a righteousness from God is what Paul is going to write about in these next verses. So come back there with me in verse 7 now. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In verses 4 through 6, Paul, there he very succinctly lists out the gain that he once thought that he had. If you've ever had maybe a, a dream or maybe it's ever happened to you where you show up for a test, maybe it's a test at work, maybe it's a test at school. I know this happened to me in college one time is you think that you've prepared hard for that test, and then you get there only to find out that you studied the wrong chapter? Has that ever happened to you? Or you studied the wrong material? And man, you, you just feel like, wow, yeah, I'm going to fail this. Well, this is kind of what Paul is saying. I, I studied all the right chapters, I, what I thought to be the right chapters, and now here is what I found it to be. And I'm going to fail the test if I don't look to Christ. So by his own assessment, Paul seemed like he was in good shape for someone that thought that they were going to be judged by a strict outward following of the law. But now Paul is saying, that is lost to me. I count it as lost. We've been going through a lot of the Sermon on the Mount with our young people's group. And one of the hinge verses that we seem to keep coming back to there is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. When Jesus tells the Pharisees, he said, I tell you, and let your, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus brought some really bad news to the Pharisees. He brought really, you know, the bad news for all of us is that we do not measure up to the standard that God requires of each and every one of us. Perfection according to his law. Jesus spoke of a righteousness one would need that even went beyond the righteousness that Paul had, the righteousness that every Pharisee had, it must be beyond that type of righteousness in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Outwardly, the Pharisees uh, were really good at getting it right when it came to the law, but bad news for us and them is that God sees the heart. No matter how good we are at controlling ourselves externally and what people see in us outwardly, Guaranteed, we are going to slip up on the inside. And even though man can't see it, we know it and God sees it. 
And that's why after stating this, after Jesus states this in the Sermon on the Mount, that you need a righteousness that exceeds that, he then goes in to describe all these sins of the heart. That they thought outwardly, I'm getting it right, I can fool people, but inwardly, if I've had a, a murderous thought or an insult for my brother within, if I've had a lustful thought within, it's just as if I committed that sin outwardly. But that's the standard we are going to be judged by because God sees and knows the heart. And the way we've described this, and I think probably Emma and Marley can tell us this, is that we drew out this line at the very top of our whiteboard, and then we drew another line below it, which is the scribes and Pharisees. And then we drew another line below that, which might be us. I asked them, have you ever made A pluses all of the time? And of course, we can't rightly say, yes, we have. Only God has the standard of A plus, and you must continually meet that mark. We do not all make A pluses all of the time. None of us do. And that is for all of sin, and we fall short of that glory of God. We fall short of that measuring stick. Paul is saying here, we don't contribute any gain at our salvation, and that is why it is counted as loss to Paul. The gain that he once had, it's loss. It's nothing. Everything that we have is for the sake of Christ. That is the way he views his life lived for Christ now. Paul will state it again here in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There is a worth that Paul has found in this conversion. We, we can read about it in Acts chapter 9 where on the Damascus road, he encountered the, the Lord himself, a powerful, blinding light, and the words of the Lord, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Paul was no longer the one who thought all of his heritage and nationality was game, but now that's lost to me. Compared to what? Compared to this surpassing worth that I have in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not anywhere is it near equal value what I had to what I now have and possess in Christ. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that phrase, the manner worthy, is looking to our salvation almost like scales, like the balancing kind of scales. And if your salvation is on one side, and your value of that salvation is on the other, how you value your salvation and the worth that is is to you will determine how it is viewed by those around you. If you do not see your, value, your salvation of much value, then you are probably going to see a life lived that does not really express the characteristics of Christ, does not have the mind of Christ in the way they act, in the way they speak, the way they behave. This word that Paul uses for the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ is the two Greek words combined. There's a huper, which is above, and there's the echo, which is to have. To have something that is above and beyond anything that he could ever imagine that he had when he had all this gain according to the law. It's to literally to hold above and to stand out or be superior in rank, authority, or power. It speaks of that which excels, is superior or better, and which is, is exceptional and excellent. To know Christ Jesus as Lord is 
the spiritual knowing that Paul is speaking of here. It's a very intimate knowing of who God is through Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that thought here in just a moment because Paul will speak of this knowing of God here in just a moment. We'll come back to it. What do we count as things that are of value or of worth to us here? And how does that measure up to the surpassing worth of Christ in our lives? His having saved us, how do we value that when compared to the other things that we place value in here in this earth. And I granted, you know, there are things that are blessings of God that we should see as things that He gives us, our family, um, the, the food that we eat, the homes that we live in, but to value those much more than our salvation is to put our gain above Christ. And that's not where it should be. And this hits hard, because how many things are we willing to set aside that are not going to even live past the moments for the sake of Christ. Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says he counts them as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. When Paul was converted, he immediately fell from Pharisee fame. If there was everyone that was a famous Pharisee, Paul had fallen. The realness of Paul's salvation is seen not in his slow coming around, you know, one day is like, aha, but he had an immediate heart change. From a place where he found much pride and even salvation in being right with the law to now giving it all up because he had found something of far greater value. Paul makes it clear. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. He didn't just divest himself of, um, you know, some stock ownership somewhere. He, he got rid of it all. Everything that he once held dear is now something that is lost to him. Remember that Paul, Paul's fall was pretty hard, and I think what shows this best is probably Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. We, you don't have to turn there, but if you're still there from our reading earlier in Acts 9, verse 23 says, When many days had passed, and this is after Paul's conversion, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Man, that's, that's something that's humbling, right? To come from this place of being looked at as the authority on all matters of the Torah, having all this knowledge of, of the Word of God, being able to follow the rules and everybody elevating Paul to this high status. You know, Paul probably walked around when he had all this gain thinking of himself as a, as a big hot shot. And now imagine the word that spread around about Paul as he was now being lowered in this basket, coming from that place of pride, now being humbled, but he was willing to give all that up for the sake of Christ. It's just very, the imagery there for me is pretty striking. When Paul says that he suffered the loss of all these things, that is what it looked like. Jesus says in Mark eight thirty six, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The Greek word for gain is kerdos, which means literally to procure an advantage or a profit, to acquire by effort or investment or to make a profit. And Paul now realized that all the gain was found in Christ. The former gain was all lost. 
the former things that once gave him status, he now uses a word to describe that. He calls it rubbish. He said, I now count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Some of you may be familiar with this word and may have done a study on it, but I think that rubbish is a very kind translation of the word in the ESV. I don't know where it's trans- or how it's translated in others, but it really means dung. Think of holding this thing that you once thought was great value, and then suddenly in your hands it turns into raw sewage. You know, that is how you are to view the, that's, that's the rubbish that Paul is speaking of. It's a Greek word called skubalon, and it's literally any refuse such as the excrement of animals, off scourgings, rubbish, dregs, and so figuratively speaks of the things that are worthless and detestable. It includes material that is thrown to the dogs. So maybe rubbish, I don't know if it quite gives the, the right meaning of the word here. I think the ESV translators may have could have done a better job with that because we want something in our minds that is totally detestable to us because that is how Paul is describing those things that he once thought gain. He therefore utterly despises that which he once thought to be more precious than gold, and he takes possession of that gain now as his greatest treasure, that thing that he once trampled in the mire, being a persecutor of the Christians and trying to snuff out the message of the gospel, now that is his gain. Such was the change and conversion of Paul. Those things are the very things that Paul would say now would rob the joy from a believer's life. Coming back to our study last week where Paul would you know, describe this rejoicing in Christ and we need to be on guard. And his prayers were that they would, they would be safe from it. And that's why he warned so strongly against it is because if anything is going to rob this joy that you have in Christ, it will be those who try to impose these legalistic requirements into your worship and relationship with, with God. And Paul is happy to lose these things because now that joy that he had was a true joy that was found in Christ alone. Verse 9 to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul was so glad to lose all these things in order to gain Christ. And before Paul, before this, that Paul thought his righteousness was going to be found in a law. He said that according to the law, he was blameless. But now it is to be found in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is used so often by Paul. He loves this concept. We should love this concept as well because it is what is inspired in Scripture. Um, It describes an identity. It describes a covenant oneness with God. And Paul refers to it, our position in Christ. It's used 86 times in all of Paul's writings. And then another 30, 31 times in Him is used. So if you think about in Christ being the same thing as in Him, over 100 times Paul uses this in his epistles, which I thought was an interesting fun fact. I think of how King David wrote in so many of his psalms where he says that the Lord is our refuge, that in God we find our refuge, in Him we find our strength, and that we come to the end of our dependence on ourselves our man-made ways to God, and we come to Him in humble surrender. 
And that is what it means to now be in Christ. He is our strength. He is our portion. He is our refuge. He is our protection. In Matthew 9, 13, it says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's realizing that we are lost and that we need to be found. In Christ means that we are no longer under the Father's wrath, that now we are no longer under that condemnation, but now we are in that economy of mercy and grace because now we are in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not in ourselves, not in a religious act, not in our nationality, not in our heritage. None of that will put us in the righteousness of God. We need to be in Christ in order to be counted as righteous in Him. Romans 10, 2-4, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. This is Paul speaking now of the Pharisees, of who he once was. He says, But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I think that is quite a profound thing to think on, how we are now seen by God under the covering of His beloved, which is Christ Jesus. That we could be called the beloved in Christ. There is a special love accorded by God to those who are His children. And this should not be taken lightly. It is critical to understand that genuine saving faith is more than just an intellectual kind of assent to God. We know that James writes of a faith that even the demons possess that. They could give an assent to Christ. But there is a true saving faith that is inseparable from repentance, from surrender, and just a supernatural indwelling longing to obey our Lord. James makes it clear that faith without works is a dead kind of faith. So we do not work to earn our salvation, but because we are saved, we have the indwelling, we have the enablement of God to do works for the glory of Christ, for the glory of God. Paul now says in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I said we're going to come back to this word to know, to know God, to know Christ. And it's this aspect of knowing him not in just the knowledge of him but there is a very intimate kind of knowing that is inferred here. That I may know is the Greek word gnosko, and it usually speaks of attaining some kind of experiential knowledge. But in other words, it is just an intellectual knowledge. But then there are the facts of a personal experience with someone or something. In this case, the knowledge of the person of Christ. And here, the Greek word that is used here is from a Hebrew word where Moses writes about Adam, who knew his wife Eve. And the knowing there was the intimate sense. And it is the same kind of word that is used here in our knowing Christ. There is a deep kind of knowing that is intimated here. Where do we see Christ, who being God, 
demonstrate his power the most now. Or let me, let me come back to this. I'm sorry about this knowing. That he may know him, and that was that intimate knowing, and then he lists out these ways in which he wanted to identify with Christ in this kind of knowing. And this should be the desire of all of us as Paul states them here. He says that I may know him, and the first one that he lists is the power of his resurrection, and then also may share his sufferings to the point becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the power of his resurrection is in seeking to know Christ more intimately that we want to identify with the power that was exhibited in and through his resurrection from the grave to overcome death and to defeat it once and for all. The law was powerless. It doesn't help us overcome sin. All it does is it stands there like a piece of stone and it condemns us. It shows us the the standard and the holiness of God, but it cannot itself save us. In Romans 8, 3 through 4, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then this place that I I came to and jumped ahead to is where do we see Christ who himself being God demonstrate this power the most? And it is in his resurrection from the dead that he overcame death. He defeated the grave. And this is the kind of power that Paul wanted to experience. That's the kind of power he wanted to identify with when he says, I want to know him. I want to know him in this way. All those who believe in one sense, we have experienced a resurrection power when we are raised spiritually from the dead. We were dead in our sin and trespasses, but now we are raised again to life in Christ. But Paul was looking to this to continually be his resource of of strength and power as he lived out his Christian walk here on this earth. The same resurrection power to overcome sin and temptation, to serve Christ, to overcome trials is recognized in Christ overcoming sin and the grave. The gospel by, is Paul, described by Paul in Romans, I think it's 1, 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God is encompassed in the gospel message which includes Christ overcoming the grave. That is the victorious, triumphant call of the gospel. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living because he lives, as the psalm writer states. The songwriter states, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith is the continuance of that passage that Paul uses in Romans 1.16. The faith is the same faith that Old Testament believers had in looking ahead at Christ being their righteousness in the Messiah and the faith that we have on this side of the cross as Christ being the righteousness that we need and it is by faith in him. Paul would go further. He wants to identify and to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, but also that he may share his sufferings. For Paul to actually share in the same sufferings of Christ was impossible to him, for him. You know, Christ bore our transgressions. He went through the, the penalty, the, the, the things that were subject to him, um, 
the lies, the accusations. Paul is not talking about walking through these step by step like Christ as if he could earn his way into heaven that way. Uh, the, the kind of suffering that Paul is speaking of here, I think, is one that we looked at in Colossians 1.24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. The only lack that is there is not in Christ's sacrifice. His Christ's sacrifice was all sufficient. The only lack that is in that verse is appeasing the desire of sinful man to continue to persecute those who, for the sake of Christ and his church, stand for truth. So we are going to undergo persecutions as those who name the name of Christ. We will experience sufferings for the sake of Christ, and that is what Paul is speaking of. It's in that sense that Paul is saying that we are, he is being filled up with what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, is that he's making a stand for Christ, and he's serving his church as one who is willing to, to suffer for his name. And I find that in our sufferings and our afflictions, and you can probably give testimony to this too, is that when you are at your weakest, that God is made stronger in your weakness. And that he shows himself more powerful in your life when you are going through hardships and struggles. It's sort of what makes us look to him all the more. And I find that our sufferings will do that in our afflictions, bring us in that nearness to God. In Acts 5, 40 through 41, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were going, they were experiencing the sufferings of Christ and their sharing of the gospel. And that is how Paul is describing that here is that the sufferings of Christ that he wanted to share in and identify with was that he would go through it for the sake of Christ. And spreading the gospel, if he suffered loss, then so be it. It was to the glory of Christ. He says, further, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I believe that Paul is speaking of the degree to which he was willing to take his identification with Christ. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can see all these believers who put their faith and their trust solely in Christ to the point where they were willing to die for the sharing of the gospel. And if those sufferings lead to death, Paul was willing to do it in order to identify with his Lord and Savior, to know Christ. Earlier in chapter 2, we see Paul describe the example of the humility of Christ and how Christ became obedient even unto death, death on the cross. And I think Paul is kind of hearkening back to that humility example that we have perfectly illustrated to us in Christ. Paul wanted to identify with Christ in this sense, that his humility would be seen in what he would be willing to go to, that he was so yielded to the will of God, just as Christ was, that he would willingly go to his death if necessary. Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is where we're going to end this morning, the last verse for us. And I think it's debated here about which resurrection Paul is referring to, whether it's a spiritual one that is also described in Scripture. We have a resurrection of our spirits, you know, being dead to self and raised with Christ, or whether he is referring to the physical one here, because both are mentioned in the Bible. And I think I'm more in the camp of those who believe he is referring to Christ's second coming when the dead in Christ shall rise. And 
I'm only in that camp because I've read through a bunch of commentators on this, and I tend to see the way this is phrased, and probably what made the most sense to me is it literally reads, the out-resurrection from among the corpses is what Paul is saying when he says resurrection from the dead. The out-resurrection from the corpses that believers will attain when that resurrection happens. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here the focus of Paul is shifting from the participation of life of the risen Christ here, and now he's focusing in on the final and ultimate rising from the dead when the believers will enter the promised land and into the eternal blessedness that is our hope of heaven. Now the closer that one is to their time of salvation, when we were regenerated by Christ, we can maybe recall more vividly the past that we left behind, the things that we once lived in, the things that we once thought gain. And I hope that we are like Paul and can arrive at this place where our relationship is so rooted in Christ and has matured to the point where we consider all that we have gave up for the glory of Christ is just like the trash that was thrown away, is just like the sewage that is drained off into the city system that is nothing to us. But when we look at ourselves and we evaluate ourselves against Scripture, and we find that we still have the same tastes in music, if we find that we are still gratifying the same cravings of our flesh nature, if we still surround ourselves with the same group of friends that we had before we were saved, if we still find our salvation and our hope in some form of religion or because we you know, came from some background, then maybe we should pause and do an evaluation. I think that's, if you say, no, I don't do that, I mean, still pause <laughs> and do an evaluation because maybe like Paul, what you left behind was a reliance on self and a strict adherence to some religious or some ritual aspects to that religion that you thought brought you your salvation or earned you some kind of special favor with God. And it is good to remind ourselves, and I think that especially when we're tempted to return, when we're tempted by those things that we want to fall back on, that we thought were gain, um, that what we had when we were in those things is there was an emptiness, that there was a heaviness, that there was a longing after something that was more. We maybe wasn't able to, weren't able to put the, the finger exactly on what that was, but then Christ comes, and by His grace, He saves us and He restores us. And I think there's, it's good for us to remember those things that once held us only in light of the fact of comparing it to the surpassing worth now of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I think we need to consider how much do I value Christ? What is the worth of salvation? For someone observing you from the outside, would there be little seen that would tell them that you value Christ more than anything this world has or could give you? And maybe for some of you, it is, have I truly trusted Christ to be my Lord and Savior? Am I truly going to be found in Christ? Will I surrender to Christ today? for the sake of Christ. That 
older worship hymn by Graham Kendrick that the, the ladies brought as a song of worship to us. Some of the closing words that I'm going to end with here. All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your instruction to us through your word. And I pray that all of us here, as we sing this last song together, maybe we just stop and really consider the surpassing worth of knowing who you are and what you have done for us. Maybe we've given an assent to the knowledge of that fact of what you have done, and maybe it was done in church one day, and we thought because we came forward or we were there praying a special prayer that that's what saved us, but it is only in Christ and through his sacrifice on the cross that we are saved, and if that faith is not seen in our obedience to you, God, I pray that you would just convict the heart that is not right before you, the one who is lost and unsaved. And for those who know you, but maybe we've just slipped back into some things that have tarnished the, uh, the pureness of that relationship with you, the identifying with you, God, I pray that we would confess that before you as well, that we would judge our own hearts, that we'd come to you in agreement about the sin that we are either lost in or we stumble back into, God, and we just ask for your help. We know your mercies are new for us every morning. We just seek to know you more and we seek to live a life that is seen in obedience to you, God, that the saving faith that has taken hold of us, God, makes us real to this outside world. And Lord, you are the one worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor. And we just want to turn our attention to you, God. We pray that we live this walk out, not just in our church building, but in the community around us, in our workplaces, in our homes that we are challenged by this text, Lord. I know that I am. We pray that you would just continue um, to move in our hearts and to work in our lives to glorify you and to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.